If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. People always like the score. Hello. Today, I've got a special episode lined up for us. We've got composer Craig Saffin being interviewed on the show. He's known for The Last Starfighter, and it was a real privilege to be able to record the interview with him. After that, Tim Benson and I will discuss the film, and all in a fully packed show, today on Soundtrack Alley. Tim, it's nice to have you again on the show. Uh, wouldn't you agree this is a very special episode we have? Yeah, Craig Saffin. Uh, that, was, that was great. You got to be able to do an interview with him, and it was a lot of fun to listen to. So, Yeah, so um, like Tim said, we have a creator interview uh, as we get to the core of our podcast today. And I had the opportunity to interview him, and he's done music for movies such as Wolfen and The Last Starfighter that are uh, well known. I wanted to share this interview with all of you. And after sharing that interview, Tim and I will go into a few facts and tidbits on the movie The Last Starfighter, culminating in with the ending of some fantastic cues of the film. So now I'd like to present the interview with Craig Saffin. Hello! This is Randy Andrews. I'm with Craig Saffin. I have a few questions for you today. Great. The first question I'd like to ask you is, how early in film production does a composer like yourself get involved with the film? Uh, Well, generally, especially back in those days, which was pre-digital or very early digital, we really didn't get involved until after the film was shot. So in the case of The Last Starfighter, it was when the movie had been shot, but the effects were just beginning to be developed. And that was probably, it was maybe the first real CGI film, uh, that in Tron, I guess. Uh, Today, composers may be involved earlier because it's so easy to digitally put down a track and temp track and all that. But in those days, you couldn't do that. So the composer was brought on 
you know, hired during the editing process. Okay. So the film film had been shot. All right. So when were you able to meet the director, Nick Castle, and what was it like working with him? Well, I had already worked with Nick on a movie called uh, Tag, the Assassination Game. And so I knew that Nick wanted me to do this movie, but I couldn't really do it until I was actually hired because there's always a lot of politics involved. But once I got involved with the picture, uh, you know, I went over there and I read the script and I looked at a little bit of footage and we talked about the approach of the music with Nick and I did and then with the producer, Gary Adelson, and then also with uh, the music department at, I guess it was Lorimar at the time. Hmm, Okay. Um, What were your influences for composing the score for The Last Starfighter? Well, the problem with that kind of movie, especially back in the 80s, was that you were coming on the footsteps of Star Wars. So it was pretty hard with a sci-fi, fun, youthful adventure film to really go in a different direction than the big orchestral uh, mammoth sort of Holst the planets kind of music, which was what Star Wars was. Mm-hmm. So Star Star Wars was originally temped with the planets, and then people uh, brought in John Williams to do that kind of music. But it's basically late romantic, gigantic orchestra. So there was really no way to go against that. If I had said, "Oh, let's do this electronically," or "Let's do this more," uh, you know, more modern, uh, I would have been fired immediately. So. The trick was to try to figure out how to do that, but sort of make it my own and give it its own twist. And so I had a few ways of doing that. I think my biggest influence was was uh, deciding not to listen to Hulse, but to listen to Sibelius. So that's a little maybe arcane for people who aren't musicians, but it's, it's just a different, more lush, uh, more active music. It, it's it's a lot of fun. Sibelius is, was a wonderful composer. The other thing I did was uh, put in a bunch of electronics. So I'd been involved with electronic music since my college days in the late '60s. So I've I sort of actually was doing electronic music and rock and roll music before I ever picked up a baton and did big orchestra. So uh, electronics has always been ingrained in all my music through my mm. whole career. So I decided to, to actually have two synth players play live with like the 80-piece orchestra I had. And that added a, a color and a, for example, uh, there was a new kind of instrument that had just been invented that was basically an electronic woodwind instrument called an EWI, okay. which was played like a clarinet, but you ran it through a synthesizer. Oh. So I used, I used that uh for Centauri's theme. So whenever you hear his music, and sort of sort of like the snake charmer music, it's always played on the EWI. So that was different and something new. And then the other thing I did was rather than have a ton of themes for each character, I, I had much fewer, th- many fewer themes. Mm-hmm. So I decided I'd have one big theme that I could use in a lot of ways. I could play it sad, I could play it wistful, I could play it romantically in love, and of course I could play it 
adventure, but it's all exactly the same piece of music. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, why people remember the score, because it has that big theme, but it's used in every way possible. And there are a few little sub-themes, but, but I'd say 90% of the score is that theme played in, in all sorts of ways. And that, that was different than a lot of other movies, too. Mm-hmm. Which tended to have uh, tended to have a lot of different themes for each character, which was more sort of in the, I guess, more in the operatic style. Ah, uh, so did you get a lot of flack from other composers or people no. that reacted to the score? No, people always liked the score. I got, I mean, you have to realize when you do a score, there's nobody reacts to it at all. I mean, it's just part of the movie and other composers are pretty much not even aware of it or eventually become aware of it, but they're all doing their work. I mean, I've gotten nothing but compliments from uh, people, including John Williams. So, I mean, I've got, I've, I've never had any negative feedback on that score, which is pretty unique, but that's really good. Yeah. But frankly, people don't, you know, say bad things about a score very often or it's just part of the fabric of the film and uh, it's got to be pretty awful for people to actually talk about it but it also has to be pretty good for people to talk about it so this one has been talked about a lot in a good way mm-hmm. so I mean here when I mean, you're talking about it and it, I think I did this in what 84 or 83 something like that 84 I think mm-hmm. so you know it's a long time ago yeah and it, it makes for, like, anything that you do afterward, not really to be inspired by that, but to help you grow as a composer. Is that correct? Well, sure. I mean, everything you, each job you do, you learn something. Uh, so, you, you know, if you're a good composer, everything you do, you're learning. I've always been a pretty eclectic composer. So some people tend to always write pretty much in the same style. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I've never been one of those people. I mean, I started, like I said, in rock and roll. I also used, when I was really young, I was playing jazz and ragtime. Then I got into really electronic and avant-garde music. And then when I started doing film composing, of course, I got into the more traditional orchestra. So I would go, every film I would sort of approach uniquely. Uh, so that that's sort of the way my writing is and the way my career has been. So I've done... I mean, the same year I did Warning Sign, which was a totally synthetic Synclavier score. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of all over the place. Oh, okay. So, when looking back on different scores that you've done and different, say, directors or different um, movies that you've worked with, uh, what director do you think you would work with again? If you had well, the opportunity. Well, I mean, Nick Castle was really probably the best director I worked with in terms of just being a great guy, really easy to work with. He understood music very well because he came from a, a dance background. His father was a very famous choreographer. So Nick knew music really, really well. Plus, he was a musician, too. Uh, he and John Carpenter were in a rock and roll band in college. You may not know that. But oh, <laughs> and he was, of course, Michael Myers in uh, Halloween. Um, so Nick is very musical and very uh, open. 
and he's not uh, sort of a maniacal kind of director who wants to be involved in every single note. But yet he gives very good direction. So he's so he and I think I did the most movies for him through my career. I think I did like five or six movies with Nick. That's pretty good. With with different composers, what other composer do you kind of admire or look to for influences? Well, I mean, I'm now at the age where I don't do that. I don't look for influence a whole lot. Uh-huh. When I was when I was younger, I mean, my favorite composers were Bernard Herrmann, um, Jerry Goldsmith, and Elmer Bernstein. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough to have Elmer was a mentor and helped me in my career when I was young. So I knew Elmer pretty well. But those, I think, were the those were the really great influences. I think Jerry Goldsmith was a big influence. That's really, really good. Um, so I read a report recently that John Williams has never seen a Star Wars film in a theater or any other films that he scored. <laughs> so you yourself, have you ever seen any of the finished films? And if you have, uh, what was it like getting the reaction maybe of the audience? Yeah, I've seen most of my films in the theater. I mean, that's to me, that's a fun part. And, uh, you know, I think maybe for some people it's painful because a lot of times the music you write is sort of buried underneath a lot of effects and dialogue. And then, of course, every theater sound system is different. And, you know, so it's sort of horrifying on that level. But on the other hand, it's fun. I mean, it's fun to hear the audience. It's fun to sit with an audience. And it's fun to just feel good about the final product, if you do feel good. But I do. And uh, I've seen pretty much all my movies in the theater and then later on cable and TV. And now you, you can stream a lot of them. You know, it's, it's sort of fun. With current projects, what are you currently working on? Uh, I'm working on two things. So I have a, a new album that will be coming out. It's called Sirens. And it's based on the Odyssey. And I traveled to all of the locations that we think the Odyssey, all the islands. And I recorded a lot of the sounds and went into caves and got the reverbs. And so that that CD, uh, that album will be coming out, I think, by the summer. And then the other thing I'm doing is I'm writing a new score for Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, which was a silent movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been uh, commissioned by the Dallas Chamber Symphony to write a new score for it. And then it's going to be performed live to the picture in Dallas in uh, February. Is that somewhat daunting for you? It's fun. Uh, It's a lot of work, I have to say, because it's 50, it's like 54 minutes of music. So Uh that's a lot of music. Yeah. And of course, you you can't hide behind anything. There's nothing to hide (laughs) Because there's no dialogue, no effects, it's just the music. It's challenging. I've never done it before. Uh, I've sort of wanted to do it for a long time, and this sort of just came my way. So that's that's sort of what I'm going to be doing now uh, for the next, I guess, couple months. Oh, okay. Uh, what do you find it easier to do or to work with, um, a larger orchestra or a smaller one? Uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, it... it 
it just depends on the movie. I mean, you can do a movie with just a couple of instruments or with a, a gigantic orchestra. It's all fun. I mean, the thing is, is that if you're using a big orchestra, you generally have a lot of support because to afford a big orchestra means that the movie is, you know, at a big studio and you have a lot of, a lot of sort of people helping you, which is, is good. When you work on a small movie, even with a small orchestra, you end up doing a lot of stuff yourself because they don't have the budget for a big music department. So in a way, it's just as much work to do a small film as a big film. Oh, okay. Um, I've always appreciated your film music, and I was looking back on some of the films that you've done, like uh, Wolfen. I noticed that mm -hmm. that was an un used score um right so was that ever released as an additional score to the film or did you actually get to work with uh james horner on that film or no. how did that happen no no james replaced me so uh, i was the composer on that film and the film ran into a lot of trouble the director was i actually the director was fired wow uh and they ended up bringing in a completely new team, a new director, new editors, everything. They let me finish my job, which was scoring the picture. But all along, I think the director was just biding his time to fire me because he wanted, he didn't want anything from the sort of old regime. Mm. So I, so I scored it. And if you hear the music, it's very, very aleatoric, which means it's just almost, it, it, there's no, it's just sounds with the orchestra. It's a pretty mm -hmm. cool score. And then, uh, so they fired me, but not, but not until they let me do my, actually record it with a big orchestra. That's, that's and really then, then, good. Well, not really. I think <laughs> oh. they, he just didn't have the power to fire me before that happened because uh -huh. the, the producer liked me, but the director had been fired, but the new director didn't have the power. Plus he had to think of other things like recutting the film and making this film actually work uh -huh. and then he hired and then he hired james so james and i never had anything to do with you we all we know each other we knew each other of course but we we really had nothing to do with each other in the film and then my, that the score that i wrote became sort of one of those legendary thrown out movie scores uh -huh. and then when uh i don't know when it was but intrada records released james score and then at the same time released my score so they got the rights to my music and to his music and released two CDs. Wow. Well, that's that's pretty impressive, though. That way yeah, your film music okay. wasn't, you know, it wasn't just rejected and put off to the side and never released. You actually had an opportunity to have that released to where people could hear your score. Yeah. No, I think it worked out as well as it could have. It was... It was uh, you know, difficult to go through that, but pretty much every composer goes through that at the very least once in their career. Mm -hmm. um, um, do you know, you, Mick, do you know the composer Miklos Rosa? I've heard of him. Okay, so he was one of the greats back in the early days. He told my agent when I was very young. He said, "My aid to my agent, the mark of maturity in a young composer is having his first score thrown out." <laughs> so. Well, that's I mean, the... good comp. There's actually a whole book about thrown out scores. It's oh. a huge book. Oh wow! So, when you were working on the last Starfighter, did you get to meet any of the cast or 
were you just you know having to deal with just the film score itself or anything like that uh yeah i met everybody uh i did you know we composers come in after the shooting so it's not like everybody's around but yeah i've, I've met everybody and i've actually still occasionally see uh catherine mary stewart or oh, okay what's his name i forget his name who did the who was the lead guy yeah i see them at screenings mainly oh, okay. you know it's sort of become a classic film so you know every few years there's a screening and then they invite everybody to talk and so i see everybody oh, that's that's and, pretty and exciting. also the effects guys yeah uh so <clears throat> do you have any funny stories regarding the movie or with conversations with some of the cast or not really i I really never talked to the cast about the film much at all um in terms of the music not, not really i mean it, it it uh it was actually one of the best experiences i had it was a wonderful feeling uh to you know it's pretty young and uh i guess i was in my early 30s and to, to sort of walk into the stage at MGM and just to sort of hear the players, you know, practicing my themes, it was very moving. And then the music just sounded fantastic. And, uh, and I was recording at that stage at MGM, which is where Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz oh, wow, yeah. had been recorded. So I don't know, I sort of felt sort of very happy uh it was a really a best moment mm -hmm. and the orchestra sounded fantastic that's, you know great players that's good uh it's so very memorable was it a very large studio or uh yeah it's, it's yeah you, yeah we had like an 80 piece orchestra and wow it's huge yeah. <laughs> do you have you ever found that uh when you compose do you think of the different instruments that you need to have play during different sure. parts of course that's the job <laughs> you have to know what's playing your music and you're maybe working on a movie where you can't afford a 80-piece orchestra that's a lot of money mm -hmm. you know and so you do you yeah of course you're always thinking about what instruments you, you don't really start composing a film score unless until you know what your orchestra is pretty much because you may have all these ideas and they may not be possible yeah you know that's that's very true. Uh, so do you have any um, stories to tell maybe in regard to not only The Last Starfighter, but um, with other films that you've composed for or even with your own work? Well, I don't have a lot of stories. I think I think uh, I had a really interesting time on my last album, which was called Rough Magic. Yes, uh, I sampled was... that. That was really amazing. Oh, thanks. It was uh, so that I I actually went and visited all these uh, Paleolithic cave sites in North Spain and in France, where people had, you know, painted animals and symbols and a few people on the cave walls, you know, thirty, forty thousand years ago. Mm -hmm. And I went into those and I recorded a lot of sounds and sounds of people talking then I was able with a friend who works for Apple I was able to take all the, uh, rec the recordings I did and and actually be able to take the the reverbs in each cave and put them into my computer so I could use them like 
on a trumpet or something like that. So all the reverbs are the actual reverbs from the caves, which was really cool. Yeah. And, and it was just amazing to be in these caves and to see, you know, peop, work that people had done. I mean, if you think that ancient Greece was, what, 4,000 years ago? I mean, these people were up to 40,000 years ago. And uh, so it's pretty awesome. So that was a great experience, and I love doing that. Uh, that was the first time I had done an album that wasn't directly related to a film. Mm-hmm. And now now I'm doing this new one, Siren. So that's sort of probably what I'm going to be doing now. Oh, that's, that's really impressive. I always have admired the Last Starfighter score, and I have always appreciated it. And when I put this interview into my podcast um Mm -hmm. i wondered if it would be all right if i played a few cues from of course the uh the score uh absolutely because i've always really appreciated that score and it's just an amazing piece of work well thank you you're welcome and so with your current projects that you do are you very are you really glad that you do more independent work than having to uh, have your work controlled by others? Well, there's good and bad. I mean, the good is that I I can write whatever I want. And I think at this point, it's a good thing to do. I really enjoy it. I mean, you know, you don't make the same money when you release your own albums as you do when someone hires you to do a big movie. So Mm. uh, that's the that's the downside of it. But on the other hand, I had many years when people were paying me to write music. So this is sort of an appropriate uh, part of my life right now to do this. Well, that's really fantastic. I, I have really enjoyed being able to ask you these questions. Thank you so much for being on with me today, Craig. And I hope to hear your next album. It's called Sirens, correct? That's right. And for ones who will be listening, you can find Craig's music on craigsaffin.com, correct? That's correct. And thank you, Randy. Nice talking to you, too. Yes. Thank you so much. So what did you think of that interview, Tim? That was great. Uh, it was, you know, it's one of those things you don't really see a lot about how the music is made. Um, and I'm glad you asked him about the timeline, like when does the composer actually get involved? So that was cool to, to hear that and kind of get the behind the scenes on how, how the computer composer gets involved in it. I can't even imagine 80 pieces of music. like 80 piece orchestra? Like, yeah. I can't play one. You know, so uh, to be able to control 80 pieces is just a testament to, to how talented these composers are and uh, maybe how unrewarded they are for a movie. Like he said, a good composer is unnoticed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I found it really good and enjoyable to listen to him present his relationship with Nick Castle and how he had worked with Nick Castle before on different films. And in the notes that I have, Nick Castle specifically chose Craig Zaffin to score The Last Starfighter. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot, just in all the movies that we've talked about and just listening to the podcast. Um, 
directors seem to find a composer they, they like and they work well with and they, they stick with them. Rarely have I seen a, a composer and director not do at least three or four films, you know, together. So um, it's a, an interesting bond that you don't hear much about. Yeah, and The Last Starfighter, um, you've listened to the score. I've listened to the score several times. And I really have found that Craig Saffin, he really emphasizes both halves of that space opera equation. The more quiet, emotional way of bringing out a film. Uh, I like in my notes, I, I wrote down that he was employing an overstuffed orchestra to create a series of epic heroic themes favoring time-honored melodic idioms over a modern synthesizer with fanfare and brass and sweeping strings and it's invoking a classic Hollywood golden era of film scoring and it proves timeless and even presents a traditional listening uh, experience so yeah this was probably the first score I just listened to, start mm-hmm. to finish, and and enjoyed it. Some scores, it's just background music, and sometimes you feel like the score is a character itself. And I, this, so this is the first time I ever saw Last Starfighter. Oh, okay. um, it's on the list of movies that somehow slipped by me. What I felt was a lot of Ben Hur, so you know that classic golden era of, of film. So, you know, Ben-Hur in space. Mm-hmm. And it was great, though. And I also felt like it was the first CGI movie. So it doesn't hold up real well. No. But I felt like the music still gets you sucked in. And despite these bad graphics, you still feel that emotional pull during those battles and things like that. And the same element of, you know, what makes Star Wars so compelling. Um, for, you know, they're very different reasons with that music carries you and keeps that emotional pull while you're watching you know plastic ships fly through space Mm -hmm. or in this case computer generated ships fly through space it's the music that made this movie timeless and didn't kind of put me to sleep Mm -hmm. where where others may have so i really found with craig's interview that he presented that main theme throughout the entire score Mm -hmm. like you could feel it in really quiet moments you felt it even in centauri's theme like they bring it in just a tiny little bit and he blended that theme throughout the whole film to where you could remember that theme and know oh this is the last starfighter and it would cement that idea in your head Centaurus theme was, was probably my favorite, but you can definitely feel it in other parts or feel other parts in Centaurus theme. But yeah, as much as you you wave back and forth on what, liking Centauri, mm-hmm. uh, you can't help but you know get that that rush when he comes on screen because of that the music. So yeah, with uh, Robert Preston, I mean this was his last film that he did. Yeah, he had made a career from Broadway. Mm-hmm. He was with the production of The Music Man, and he did it very well. And even with this being a science fiction film, 
Robert Preston did an amazing job yeah. presenting his role as this fast-talking, smooth a, advertiser. Like a, yeah, he's like a, a recruiting agent who gets bonuses for, uh-huh. for recruiting. It was, it was a weird mix to see. You know, there's there's the sequel that never got made. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's been back in up. 2009. Yeah, um, it would be it would be great to see that see how those those characters are portrayed using you know modern stereotypes and and archetypes. Um, mm-hmm. He would be the backbone of that movie in a remake or in a, a modern telling of it. And I mean, he plays a, a key part in the movie then, but mm-hmm. you can tell the difference in. 80s you know adventure movies it's the the boy's journey you know mm-hmm. the boy is the central whereas today it's the mentor that carries the movie a lot of times so, yeah yeah i found it unique with the whole idea that there were so many effects that were computer generated atari actually programmed games for its 5200 system uh that were based for a tie-in with this movie and nothing yeah yeah i mean the games never went past that prototype stage but you can find emulators on the computer for playing that actual game oh yeah in modern game design it's you know it's a computer programming 101 to make the last starfighter video game but yeah it's amazing watching this movie i immediately thought there had to be a game there mm-hmm. had to be an arcade game there, there was also something. a nintendo game and just that nothing, was presented that well yeah nothing ever came of it there some of the stuff they built got turned into other games like solaris mm-hmm. but they never made a last starfighter game and I, I wonder well they did it with nintendo yeah but it was very much different than yeah. the atari generation but I just wonder if that didn't have something to do with its. I don't. Know, I don't want to say lack of success, no. but like compare it to Tron. I would say the time period that it was made, they couldn't make a successful game out of it because they didn't have the technology that was available to make it higher quality. Yeah, but I mean, like, like Tron is facing. So the this movie and Tron. They get compared all the time because they're the first first movies to use CGI in a dominant sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, yeah. this is almost entirely CGI. Tron had a, a very successful arcade game mm-hmm. and video game, and, which spawned more... You know, you couldn't go see a movie all the time, but you could go play the game all the time. And I wonder yeah. if, had there been a successful arcade game for Last Starfighter, like there was for Tron... Would we would we know Last Starfighter better? You know, we would probably it, would. Uh, where I think Electron like, won the battle because they had the video game. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and they may have had the additional money since it was Disney. Maybe, but I think if the game would have, if the game was good, Atari would have would have pushed it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Atari put out some really bad games, so yeah. they could have made something, but. Who knows the backstory behind the the game. That's very true. So on a lot of the characters in the movie, uh, you mentioned that Centauri was your probably your favorite. Uh, Favorite theme was Centauri's theme. theme. Favorite character. What about character? Character, Grig, the the pilot. He's my favorite character. And, I mean, he's supposed to be. I thought it was cool they... He was in costume and full makeup the first time he met 
Lance Guest, yeah, uh, the main the main protagonist. So uh, they immediately got to know one another in character. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, I thought that was interesting, and I felt like it showed uh, either they're amazing actors and or you know the timing and setting helped him out a little bit. He was he was the best. I think he delivered some really corny lines really well. Yeah. That would yeah. have gone pretty flat on other actors. So. Mm-hmm. But I, I found that even the director had decided with the idea of the beta unit being Lance Guest. I mean, he was playing basically two roles yeah. in the movie. And they never shot him next to each other because, of course, they didn't have the technology well, yeah. to be able to do that. However, they did it in such a way that it made it seamless. Yeah, you can't tell. Yeah. Yeah, you can't tell uh, without looking at it specifically from that lens. And I'm sure you saw this, but the screening, so the early screening of the movie, yep. people loved the beta, so they went back and uh, they added did those... a few more scenes. I assume it's the scene with him and the girlfriend out camping yeah stuff like that that's a great scene though. yeah <laughs> so they added those scenes to get the beta unit on screen more which i thought added a great choice i think it added quite a bit to the movie oh yeah and when we look at certain elements of the film such as the star car mm-hmm. had great influences with the delorean yeah. yeah and uh just different parts oh and we have a star trek connection yeah I saw we've it. got will wheaton that actually appeared he did have speaking scenes but like, they were cut. cut yeah he is actually in one of the backgrounds wearing a red football jersey and then in the final scene he's obscured behind lewis yeah wearing a blue jacket so yes he was one of those people that appeared and then also mark Alamo, along with several others, had been put into Star Trek, uh, not only with the Next Generation, but a few of those people had been in the original Star Trek. Yeah. So I found that really unique. Sometimes it's kind of neat to find these Star Trek connections because of the hype that Star Trek always has gotten. You wonder, uh, just because Star Trek is, you know, a space movie if it's not practical effects guys talking backstage with the director that that where they're making suggestions about people they've worked with before you just wonder what that that community is like and how how people get jobs based on it yeah and i didn't realize this but the film was shot in 40 days so very fast well you're going to make the entire thing cgi you've got like when you've got all the space battles and stuff you've got all this computer work yeah and then all the actors they were acting out on in a trailer park but also you have the set for rylos yeah and i really found that to be really unique i really liked the feel of rylos and even the scene where azur makes his first appearance yeah and he was a very actual convincing villain. He played that petulant child very well. Yeah. <laughs> and his father had been with the Star yeah. League. So yeah. it was like son turning against father and yeah. changing that whole dynamic. I thought it was interesting. There's a precedent for the Starfighter to be in command of the Gunstar rather than the Navigator. 
there was a comparison that during the Second World War, there was a French Air Force that had built a bomb aimer as the aircraft commander so that he could be in a better position to direct the aircraft. Yeah. And so the last Starfighter follows that very practice. Mm-hmm. I found that really interesting in my notes. A few things that we learned from the interview. Nick Castle was in uh, Halloween oh, as Michael Myers. Michael Myers. Yeah. He's done a few other films. I found it really interesting, though, that even though we didn't get a lot about the game, we did get the influence of the game with Space Invaders. So um, we do get some kind of game, yeah. but it isn't the game that we wanted. Oh, no. So we've had some really good ways of bringing out this information about the film. There's not a lot more we can really talk about because we've felt... Uh, with the interview that we've gotten today with Craig Sappen. Yeah. Uh, it was really um, commendable that he was able to communicate with me, and we had emailed back and forth probably six or eight times trying to get time down yeah. to be able to do it, and it worked out so well. So, well, I, Before we get into the music, and I, I mean, I, I've got nothing to say about the music that Craig can't say better, you know, so yeah. I'm not going to even try, but couple things so again this first time i saw the movie loved grig in it uh but i didn't notice alan dean foster wrote the novelization yes. he's like the go-to guy he's the go-to for guy for film tie-ins yeah because um, he's done so many yeah and he does them really well so i'm actually i'm i'm gonna pick that book up um yeah. and see see what he adds it to it because it was have a you might have a hard time finding that book yeah it's it's okay though yeah. Um, we'll see what he adds to it, because it was about two years later. And then, so, Jonathan Betuel, probably mispronouncing it, who wrote this story. Mm-hmm. Um, I found, uh, there's always an inspiring story behind everything, and so he was a cab driver when he oh, wrote, yeah. wrote this movie, which, I'm not a cab driver, but it makes me think, like, you know, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you can be, you can be doing more, you know, yeah. and... So it's always inspiring to see those people who are working full-time jobs, have families, have all the demands, and are still creating, and they've got to. Um, and to see it pay off like this was, was really cool. Mm-hmm. They did make a Marvel comic. Yeah. I think it was two issues. It may have uh, been three. two. Was it, was, it three? It released in uh, Marvel like Super Special, which was yes. a, a, a large format. Um, and then they released three individual comics that collected it. I actually wouldn't story. mind picking those up. No, um, <laughs> that's I have a I have a list of like Last Starfighter, Dune. Uh, there's a bunch of Dune them. had oh, three. Oh, it's such a wonderful comic, so, and so hard to yeah. find. But yeah, there's quite a few comic tie-ins that that are just wonderful. So yeah, so uh, what I'd like to do now is play some really excellent cues from the film. I'm going to be doing these as suites. Uh, I've got the first set of four cues uh, with the main title. Then we go to uh, Alex Dreams, uh, Record Breaker, and then Centauri Into Space. And so out of, before we play that music, out of these cues, Tim, what did you find that you were impressed about with these pieces of music? I think, I mean, the main title obviously stands out. It's one of those movies that, you know, Star Wars tried to break the rules and go straight into action. Um, or, I mean, it did. But 
many films. I mean, this is 84. Uh, so years later, people are still releasing credits first, slowly building to the setting. You know, you're slowly coming down onto that trailer park. So you really get to listen to the main theme with little to no distraction. Um, and you immediately love this little trailer park town. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how many trailer parks you've been to, but <laughs> I, I've been to very few. But I already, you know, both hate and love the people who live in this trailer park and their demands and everything. Yeah. And it's because of the theme. There's yeah. no question about it. There's nothing about the filming that makes you like this town. It's the music. So it's, it's nice to see a movie open with such a strong theme. And that plays, like you said, it plays throughout the entire film. So Yeah. So now I'll play the suite.
All right, so the next set of cues I would like to play is the culmination of Alex's arrival on Rylos with the speech to the Starfighters, and then it'll end with Centauri's death. So, Tim, any thoughts on these cues that I have for us? Yeah, I think it's um, this is really where you start to feel that that Ben Hur um, part of the the movie. You know, it's the the slaves revolting, or it's the it's the where people start to question their their role in the world. So, um, I mean, great music, Centauri's death. I'm obviously much later, um, but that's the catalyst mm-hmm. uh, for the for the main character, and goes well. You know, and the flight where Centauri's you know flying and dying, uh, the music is is pretty poignant. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So now I'll play victory or death. Zur, the hit beast, and then finally Centauri dies.
the final set of cues I have is only two pieces, but it really sums up the film really well. It concludes the score. Um, we have Alex returns and into the scar starscape. Now, Tim, do you have any thoughts in regard to this final piece of music? No, I, think, I mean Alex returns. It's the he finally makes the choice to to go fight. I mean, just they're great. So yeah, and so what I'd like to do is thank you again for being on the thank show. Thank you. It's fun. Um, I know this year is a very busy year for both of us. We have lots of movies to be able to talk about, lots of scores. We have a lot more podcasts to do with each other. For those of you listening, I've got a whole lineup of different podcasts coming up in the near future. So, Tim, until next week, we can bring our visitors and lis listeners the thoughts on Resident Evil, the original movie, mm -hmm. and, and even the video game franchise. The next time we talk, uh, we'll have the final Resident Evil movie come out. Yeah. Which is called The Final Chapter. Uh, fittingly, yeah. Yeah. New Resident Evil movie, new Resident Evil video game. So definitely fitting to, to talk about the mixed scores of, of both of those franchises. So. Mm -hmm. so today we'll hear Alex Returns and Into the Starscape. So I look forward to hearing from all of you next week and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com. <laughs>